good. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Welcome to our gathering. Uh, we are the redeemed gathered around God's throne. We are trophies of His grace, as it were. According to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. As such, we are, as God has saved us by His grace, we are then trophies of that grace as we do good works before the Lord. I would say... I would hope that you would join me in saying that these truths are worth celebrating. It's worth celebrating that we bring nothing to the throne of the Lord except for our sin, which needs to be atoned for and has been atoned for by the Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. Our weekly worship, then, is just a small taste of our heavenly worship as we dwell with Him in the new heaven and new earth. As we await that glorious day, let us remember, even today, even now, even all the time, God's grace in saving us. In a little while, we will observe the Lord's table. And as we do, we want to remember what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. He was the perfect Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, yet He came to die on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. He suffered the wrath of the Father, so that we would not have to. And if we recognize our need of Him and we cry out to Him, then He will save us by His grace. Now, as we approach the time to observe the Lord's table again in just a a little while, we should recognize that we don't deserve His grace. I don't deserve His grace. You don't deserve His grace. Truly, we deserve His wrath for our sin. Yet in His kindness, according to His rich mercy, because of His great love with which He has loved us, He has, even when we were dead in our transgressions, if you are a Christian this morning, if you are in Christ, He has made us alive together with Christ. Paul says that in Ephesians 2.5, and he proclaims, For by grace you have been saved. Beloved, if you are in Christ, you have done nothing to deserve His great love. Truly, you deserve His eternal condemnation because of sin, because of your sin. Yet He gives us His grace. You know, we talk a lot about grace. I mean, after all, our church is called Grace Bible Church, is it not? You might be asking, though, what is grace? What is grace? Well, I think... Matthew Henry gives a great definition. He says, Grace is the free, undeserved goodness and favor of God to mankind. I think that's a good definition. It's free, it's undeserved, it's good, and God shows favor. He blesses us. Well, today as we return to our study in the Gospel of Matthew, I pray that you will be renewed in your understanding and celebration of His great grace as we study uh, the genealogy of our Lord in Matthew 1. So with that, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we again come to you and pray that you would be with us as we spend this short time hearing of your glorious grace toward us, 
toward us as undeserving sinners. We praise you and thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read, starting in Matthew chapter 1. Now, I read this last week, and last week we made it through, kind of made it through verse 1. But I promise you today that we're going to make it through the first 17 verses. Don't let that scare you. Uh, We won't be here for two hours. Well, we will be for if you count potluck, but not listening to me for two hours. But let's read again Matthew 1, 1 1-17. This is the text of Holy Scripture, the Gospel of Matthew. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron. And Hezron was the father of Ram. And Ram was the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. And Abijah was the father of Asa. And Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. And Joram was the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah was the father of Jotham. And Jotham was the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh was the father of Ammon. And Ammon was the father of Josiah. And Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. And Abihud was the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim was the father of Azor. And Azor was the father of Zadok. And Zadok was the father of Achim. And Achim was the father of Eliud. And Eliud was the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar was the father of Mathen. And Mathen was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Who is called Christ. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The Bible is full of stories of God's great grace. Just think of men like Paul who persecuted the church before God miraculously saved him. Moses who killed an Egyptian before fleeing to Midian. Peter, who denied our Lord three times as he faced, as the Lord faced, a certain death on a Roman cross. Our Lord not only showed his grace to these men, but he used them, all, of, all three of them, he used to accomplish his will. Perhaps the greatest sin we can commit and is, that we can commit is thinking that we can have his favor based on something he, that we have done or something good in us. Perhaps in your heart of hearts you believe that you deserve the Lord's favor, while others may not. 
Perhaps you believe that you're different. There's something about you that's special. But if you've earned grace, if you've earned God's blessing, if you've earned grace, then it's not grace at all, is it? It's easy for us to do. To think that we are somehow better, that we somehow deserve His blessing by how we live our life or who we are. We set up our own uh, way of living and, and we our own standards and we believe that if we live up to our standards, then God is going to show favor toward us. This reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son. You can turn to Luke 15 if you'd like. We're going to begin this study in Matthew's Gospel in the Gospel of Luke. But this is, this is the parable of, of the prodigal son. Now, in the story, a man had two sons. The younger son wanted his inheritance from his father early, so he went out. He, then, he took it and he went out, and he squandered all of it on loose and reckless living, according to the text. In Luke fifteen fourteen, the younger son had spent everything and was down to nothing. He was completely bankrupt. He was even dying of hunger, it says in the text. So he did what any self-respecting Jew would do in that situation. He got a job. Now this wasn't just any job, though. His employment of choice had one major, major problem. He had to tend the pigs. Stinking and unclean pigs. You see, no self-respecting Jew, while... A self-respecting Jew would get a job in that situation. No self-respecting Jew would have stooped so low to tend swine. You see, they're not clean. But then the younger son had fallen so low, he was even hoping for just a little pig slop to eat. But as he toiled in the stinking mud and the muck, he came to his senses and it dawned on him. Even his father's workers had more to eat than him. Again, this is a, a parable. It has a point, and we're going to see that in a moment. You know what happened in this, in this parable? This young man recognized his need for his father's grace. So he humbled himself, and he went back to him. Now, this is the critical turning point in this story. In, in, Matthew, or in Luke 15, 18, he says, I will rise up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. That's what he was going to say. Now, think of, now, you have to think that his father could have been spitting mad about what his son had done. He, he had squandered everything. Had disrespected him. Any self-respecting Jewish father would have disowned him. Uh, the erring son would have been absolutely dead to him. But the father does something that is downright shocking. Here in the text, look at the end of verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer to be called, worthy to be called your son. Now this is, <clears throat> this is shocking and, and scandalous. How could he embrace and kiss him after all the boy had done? That's not all, folks. It's not all. Again, if you're in the text, look at verse 22. 
But the father said to the slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put on him, put it on him and put a ring in his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the, bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come alive to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. <coughs> the father and his household began to celebrate the younger boy's or younger son's return. Look at the text. He said he was lost but now has been found. Now, I won't sing Amazing Grace again this week, but it comes to mind as I think of the Father's actions. We would like to celebrate the love that the Father had for the Son. After all, many of us were in the same position, wallowing in the stinking mud and the muck of our sin, yet Jesus Jesus doesn't stop there. If you're in the text, look at verse 25. <coughs> The older son was in the field and heard all this commotion from the party. So he asked the servants, what in tarnation is going on here? Of course, they were happy to announce, your brother has finally come back and, and it's time to party. But the older brother didn't like that at all. He refused to join the celebration. So the father pleaded with him. And he responded by pointing out his own faithfulness to the Father. He answered by proclaiming his own self-worth to the Father. In his mind, he had been faithful to serve and never neglected a command. Yet it wasn't in his heart. It wasn't serving in his heart. In his mind, the Father had never given him anything in return. Beloved, what is this? What is this? It's self-righteousness. It's dirty, stinking self-righteousness. He thought he was better than the young son, younger son, his brother, because of his works, because of what he had done. He looked down on his younger brother, and he hated what his father had done. Ultimately, he hated his father for showing grace to his brother. He did what? All self-righteous, sinning hypocrites do. He didn't recognize his own sin. He didn't recognize his own sin. It was easy to point out everybody else's sin. It was easy to say, yeah, look at him. But he didn't see his own dreadful condition. Just listen to the father's response. Verse 31. Child, you were always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours is dead, was dead, and now is alive, was lost, and now has been found. But the brother didn't compre comprehend this. You know why? Because he didn't comprehend his need for grace. He didn't understand his own need. Therefore, he couldn't celebrate the brother's repentance or the father's mercy, and he hated both of them for it. As I said earlier, perhaps the greatest sin we can commit is thinking that God shows our, his favor, or God's favor is, to us is based on something we have done or something that is inherently good in us. It's easy to believe that, that now you deserve God's favor while others do not. We see it all the time, do we not? In our, even our own heart. Well, today as we study our Lord's genealogy, we're not going to look at every minute detail. We're simply going to reflect on 
some magnificent stories of our Lord's glorious grace found in his history and his genealogy. In his genealogy, we can see a history of God's glorious grace in the story, uh, stories of chosen and flawed men, a chosen and flawed nation, chosen and flawed women, and a chosen and flawed mother. Now, before we jump into the text, let's text, let's quickly review our series introduction from last week. Last week, we studied four critical keys to unlocking the deep truths in the Gospel of Matthew. These keys are critical as we set the foundation for this study. First, it is critical, and we'll keep coming back to these as we go through the, as we go through the, the Gospel of Matthew. We'll keep coming back. We'll keep referring back to these, maybe not all in in, in every sermon, but we'll keep referring back so that we understand as we progress through the, through the study. But first, it's critical that you understand that Matthew was written using a particular course. Said another way, this gospel was written in a particular time and in a particular way in the course of history. Last week, we learned that Matthew wrote his gospel first. He was not dependent upon other sources to write his account of our Lord's life. He wrote as an eyewitness under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As such, the, the Gospel of Matthew is an inspired history of our Lord's life and ministry told from Matthew's point of view. Second, you need to recognize that Matthew was written before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. As such, Matthew recorded Jesus' prophecy of the temple's destruction in Matthew 24. Again, the, the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write Jesus' prophecy before the temple's destruction. By the way, the temple was destroyed by the Romans exactly as Jesus had prophesied and exactly as Matthew had recorded. Now let's review the second of four critical keys. Matthew was written by making a powerful case. The Gospel of Matthew makes a truly powerful case. When we understand the, the timing of the writing and the fact that it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by an actual eyewitness, that, that we understand that Matthew actually makes an incredible case for Jesus being the Messiah, the Christ, the coming King. So what was Matthew's theme and purpose? Put simply, the author presents an airtight and powerful case that Jesus is the long-awaited Messianic King. He begins to prove this from the outset by, by, of his gospel by proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of David, and the Son of Abraham. His purpose is to clearly present Jesus as the long-awaited divine king who came to earth, won redemption for his people, suffered and died on the cross, and was resurrected from the grave. He has ascended to the throne of God and will be returning in triumphant glory as the conquering king. Now, it is critical that we understand that, that Matthew makes this powerful case. Now, let's look at the third of four keys, critical keys. Matthew was written in a peculiar culture. To understand the Gospel of Matthew, we need to understand the historical setting. That's one of the, the uh, we have to understand history, uh, the history in order to interpret property. Said another way, we need to understand in this situation the particular nature of Jesus' culture uh, and Matthew's culture. This is particularly critical as we study Matthew because it is 
it has been said, it's the most Jewish of, of the four Gospels. So we need to have some understanding of the culture they lived in, because it's not like our culture. We must ha- work. I mean, this is work. We need to work to understand that Jesus' culture included many factions, different factions, that, they're Jew- that we need to understand Jewish heritage and national pride, and we also need to understand the Jewish relationship with Rome. Now, we went through that last week, if you want to go back and listen. We need to recognize how these realities help us interpret Matthew. Now, we'll keep coming back, as I said, as we progress in our study. Let's look at the fourth key to unlocking the deep truths of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was written by a profaned character. Matthew, the tax collector, he's the author of the Gospel. God's use of a man like Matthew in that culture is is nothing short of amazing and even profound. In Jewish society, as we saw last week, he was a traitorous and unclean outcast. He was the last person in the world to pin the good news of the king. So why did Matthew's background matter? Well, because he was a picture of God's amazing grace. Again, using Matthew Henry's definition, Matthew is a picture of the free, undeserved goodness and favor of God. You see, God used him as a picture of his grace toward undeserving sinners. Matthew, there was nothing inherently good in Matthew. Nothing inherently good in Matthew. Well, now in the rest of the first 17 verses of Matthew 1, we find several more magnificent pictures tucked away in the genealogy, magnificent pictures of God's glorious grace. Let's look at the first one. You can see a picture of God's glorious grace in the stories of chosen and flawed men. Now, we looked at last week, Matthew 1.1, that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Let's look at that a little bit differently. They were great men, whom God used for amazing work. We know that. Abraham, he shows up not once, but twice in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, 8-10, the the writer highlights Abraham's obedience to leave his home to go to the land of promise. You see, Abraham was a truly great man. By faith, Abraham obeyed God by leaving his home and going to a place that he did not know. Hebrews 11, 17-19, in in those verses, the writer tells the great story of Abraham offering up Isaac, his only son. God had promised Abraham a seed from whom he would call his people. Here we find something fascinating. Abraham believed that God is able to raise people from the dead. So Abraham, in Genesis 15, 6, believed God, believed in Yahweh, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, God had saved Abraham by grace through faith. But here's what makes God's grace so amazing. I just said that Abraham was a great man. But here's the truth. Here's the rest of the story in the words of Paul Harvey. Some of you may recall Paul Harvey. Abraham's greatness had nothing to do with him and everything to do with God's gracious choice. Here's the full story. Abraham was a highly flawed and sinful man. 
In Genesis 12, 11 through 19, we find that he struggled with being a weak man with a tendency to lie. The text says that there was a famine, so Abram, uh, Abraham or Abram fled the land to go to Egypt. As he approached Egypt, he told his wife to lie, or at least get, not give the full truth. He told her to say that she was his sister, not his wife. Now, that is a half-truth, actually. She was actually his half-sister. But that's a full lie. You, you understand that, right? A half-truth is a full lie. He did this to save his own skin because the king would have killed him if he found out that Sarah was his wife. You see, Abram didn't trust God. I mean, just in Genesis 12, it said he left his land and, and he did this by faith. Yet in, here in this story, he didn't, just right after that, he didn't trust God. The man known, that became known for his great faith did not trust Yahweh in this dire circumstance. Amazingly, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, found out the truth because Yahweh struck his house with great plagues. And, and Pharaoh, as always, God gets the glory, right? Because he protected Abram from, God protected Abram, Abram from Pharaoh who feared God by sending Abram packing without laying a finger on him. I'm not saying that's a saving fear, but he feared the Lord because of what he had done. Now, I mentioned earlier that Abraham got, gets two mentions in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. Well, he gets two mentions in Genesis as well for sinning in the same manner. He did it again. The other incident occurred in Genesis 20, 1-18, if you want to read, read it for yourself. Amazingly, <clears throat> the second situation occurred after Genesis 15, where it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But in both cases, God gets all the glory. Now, as for King David, he achieved many military victories and led Israel to relative peace. His great leadership united tribes, the tribes of Israel under his rule. He led the nation to a great prosperity that culminated during his son's reign. Spiritually, we know that David was a man after God's own heart. In just about every way, David was a great man. Oh, but, again, let's think about the rest of the story. He was a highly flawed and sinful man. Much is made of David's sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. He committed adultery. He committed murder. He lied to cover the whole thing up. Later in, in 2, Samuel, 2, Samuel 7, or 2 Samuel 24... David acted foolishly by sinfully numbering the people. David, David's sin by, by numbering the people in 2 Samuel 24 resulted in a pestilence being sent through the land with the death, death of many of his people. <clears throat> Here's the incredible part. Here's the incredible part of the stories of Abraham and David. Despite their sin, and even with their great flaws... God used them in mighty ways. Perhaps the most amazing facet of all of this is that Matthew starts his genealogy by highlighting these two men. These two sinful, flawed men are prominent 
have the prominent spot in the Lord's genealogy. They then are truly pictures of God's amazing grace. You know, sometimes people ask, how do you know the Bible's true? Or even attack. It can't be true, right? Well, there are many ways that we can show the truthfulness of Scripture, but perhaps the most amazing way we know that Scripture is true is that Scripture does not, does not sugarcoat anything. The Bible doesn't pull any punches. If the Bible was of men, I can promise you this. If the Bible was written by men, I mean, it is written by men, but men inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the Word of God. But if it was written by men alone, it would lionize the heroes like Abraham and David. You know what I mean? Those warts, they wouldn't be present. Their sin would be slid away. You wouldn't know of it. Yet, here it is, front and center. It shows that they are sinful men. You see, works of men always glorify men. The Bible gives us the full truth. Abraham and David were great men, not because of their faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness. In Ephesians 2, 8-9, we quote this often, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Beloved, it was not Abraham and David's great works that saved them. It was God's amazing grace. I would argue that even their faith was a gift from God. That grace and faith are both gifts. So there could never be any boasting. You see, Lord, or the, the Lord still saves by grace through faith. Right now, ask yourself, Have I placed my trust in the King's grace, in the grace of our Lord, like Abraham and David? Or am I trusting in my own works to be justified? In other words, are you a picture of God's amazing grace? When you tell your testimony, does it highlight what God has done? I'm reminded of a quote by John Newton. He himself, a former slave trader and, and the writer of Amazing Grace. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be. But still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. End quote. Have you placed your trust in the King's amazing grace? Or are you trusting in your own works to be justified before God? There's only one place to be. If you truly want to know Him, there's only one place to be. Humble yourself under His mighty hand. Understand who you are before Him and cry out to Him. Be a picture of God's amazing grace like Abraham and David. Well, we've seen these first two magnificent pictures of our Lord's glorious grace in the stories of these two flawed men. Let's look at a third picture of His glorious grace, the story of a chosen and flawed nation. If you look down in Matthew 1.17, in that verse, he, Matthew gives what I would consider a concise history of Israel. He does not intend for his genealogy 
to be exhaustive. In his genealogy, he has highlighted three periods of Israel's history. The first period is from Abraham to David. This time period included the patriarchs, enslavement in Egypt. It also consisted of Moses, the Exodus, and the wilderness wanderings, along with Joshua and the conquest of the land. All the way through the period of the judges up to the beginning of the monarchy under Saul and then David. Now, this period is characterized by wandering, by enslavement, by great sin and then deliverance, by covenant making, by law giving, by conquest, by victory, by more disobedience, and then by the rise of the monarchy. Now, the second period is from David to the deportations to Babylon. In the time of Samuel, Israel insisted on having a human king like the nations around them. Now, that was a truly bad idea. That, that part about like the nations around them, that's the part that was the bad idea. Now, there were a few good kings during this period, like David. David was a good king. And Josiah, they were both good kings. And there were a, a few others. But the kings mostly led Israel away from God and into trouble and tragedy. Tragedy. Now, when a good king came along, God blessed the nation. Then an evil king would come along and, and lead them to unbelief and apostasy. Now, during this time, the time of the kings, Israel was split into two kingdoms. Well, they were united under David, but then they were split into two, two kingdoms after Solomon, uh, his son. Uh, the, the northern tribes of Israel... Were, were defeated in, by Assyria, and Judah was exiled in Babylon starting in 586 B.C. Now, at, uh, the, the northern tribes were defeated by Israel in 722 B.C. Now, after David and Solomon, this period was generally one of decline, degeneracy, unbelief, apostasy, and incredible tragedy. We don't know as much about the third period of time, it started with the deportation to Babylon in 586 B.C. and goes through the time of Christ. Now, the Bible does give us some information about this dark time through men like Daniel and Ezra, but the Bible is silent about much of the period. Now, this time in history has been called Israel's Dark Ages. This period was marked by captivity and the frustration of partial restoration. The few were still waiting on the promised Messiah, but most had had twisted the understanding of his true identity. They imagined a political Messiah who would save them from their overlords, the Romans. This period in Israel's history ended as John the Baptist burst on the scene as the forerunner of Jesus' earthly ministry. So, according to Matthew, there are then three main periods of Israel's history. But here's the common thread throughout their history. Sin, obstinance, and disobedience. It's a common thread all the way through. But through it all, through every, each period, God's grace was operative. No matter how bad it was, no matter how much they sinned, God always saved His remnant by His grace. In the words of John MacArthur, the national genealogy of Jesus is mingled with glory and pathos, hero, heroism and disgrace, renown and obscurity, 
Israel rises, Israel falls, they stagnate, they finally reject and crucify the Messiah that God sent to them. But God, in His infinite grace, sent His Son, the Messiah, through them. What an amazing picture of God's grace. You can clearly see His grace toward the nation of Israel throughout their history. They were, in fact, an undeserving, pig-headed people. But they are a picture of the free, undeserved goodness and favor of God. For God, Israel wasn't just a means to an end. They weren't just a means to an end to be discarded on the scrap heap of history. When they were faithless, He remained faithful. His promises to Abraham and David and to the rest of Israel stood, and I would argue still stand. Beloved, if you know Him, if you know our Lord, you serve a God who is faithful and a God who is full of grace. And He demonstrated His faithfulness in Israel's history, which which is an incredible story of His amazing and glorious grace. Let's look at then four more stories quickly of His glorious grace. The stories of chosen and flawed women. If you're amazed at God's grace so far, I hope you are, prepare to be even more amazed. Look at your text starting in Matthew 1, 3. Notice, notice in verse 3, Tamar. Look down, verse 5, Rahab. Look down even further, just a little bit further, just below that in verse 5, Ruth. Then you have, in verse 6, the wife of Uriah. Let's quickly look at a sketch of these four stories of God's grace. In Genesis 38, we find the odd story of Judah. It seems, this story seems to be misplaced because it is in the middle of what many call the Joseph narrative. Now, on a side note, I would call it the Judah narrative because his actions move the overall narrative forward, but we'll leave that for another day. Oh, by the way, we're going to have Genesis study starting next, um, I think it's next week, or it's the two weeks from now. But in this story, Tamar is the Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah. Judah's son, Er married her and died. Then his son Onan took her as his wife and he died. Now, God took both of Judah's sons because of their wickedness. So Tamar was left without a husband. She was a childless widow. Now after Onan died, Judah promised his third son to Tamar, but he failed to keep that promise. Judah, Judah said he was going to do it and he didn't, so Tamar took it upon herself She disguised herself as a prostitute, and she tricked Judah into having sexual relations with her. Tamar got pregnant from that illicit illicit encounter and had twin sons, Perez and Zerah. And Judah sinfully refused to do what was right in caring for Tamar, but his line, the line of the Messiah, the Christ, was ultimately preserved by her actions. God's grace is clearly evident in that situation. And we see his grace in this hopeless and deceitful harlot as he, as he made her part of 
the Messiah's genealogy. In Joshua 2, we find the story of Israel's conquest under Joshua. Joshua had sent two men as spies into the promised land. Rahab, a harlot who lived in Jericho, took them into her home. She, along with the rest of the city, had heard of the mighty acts of God as he dwelled with Israel in in the wilderness. And in Joshua 2, 11 and 12, she confessed Yahweh as the God in heaven above and earth beneath. Now, I would argue that this was a saving confession. She feared Yahweh and was willing to obey him. Now, as you listen to these words, to her words, keep in mind who she is. She is a harlot. She says, for Yahweh, your God, he is, heaven, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So please swear to me by Yahweh, since I, have, since I have shown loving kindness to you, that you would show loving kindness to my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. She knew what was going to happen. So when the king's men came looking for the spies, so the, the, the two spies that had been sent into, into Jericho prior to the conquest, the, these two spies had been sent into Jericho to, to find out what was going on. And so when the king's men came looking for those spies, she lied to the king's men by sending them out elsewhere. Now, I'm not going to get into that, that, that part of the text, but because of her faithfulness, because of what she did, because of how she reacted, God saved her and her family when Joshua destroyed Jericho after God caused the, the walls to fail or to fall. That's in Joshua 6. Now, by the way, modern archaeology has shown that the walls of Jericho fell except for one small section, and I believe that's where Tamar and her fa- or, uh, Rahab and her family lived. God's grace spared her and her family. And she not only dwelled with Israel, she married Salmon and became the mother of Boaz, who was David's great-grandfather. Speaking of Boaz, <coughs> his story is recorded in the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth was a Gentile who lost her first husband, who was an Israelite living outside the land of Israel. After his death, she returned to Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi. (coughs) Now, Ruth was a Moabite. Now, we have to understand that the Moabites were the pagan offspring of Abraham's brother, Lot, with his two unmarried daughters. These unmarried daughters got their father, Lot, drunk and had sexual relations with him because they were unmarried and had no children. Lot's son from his older daughter was named Moab. He produced the Moabites who became Israel's bitter, bitter and ruthless enemies. According to Deuteronomy 7.3, Malon, Ruth's husband, had violated Mosaic law by marrying her. But even though she was a Moabite and a former pagan, Ruth herself was a godly woman who loved Naomi, her mother-in-law, and her god Yahweh. So she traveled back to Israel with her bitter mother-in-law and ultimately became Boaz's wife. She was saved by grace through faith in Yahweh. And Ruth Ruth 4 tells, tells us that he used her to become the grandmother of King David. Speaking of David, his story, his story contains another story of God's grace. Second Samuel, like we saw it earlier, records the story of Bathsheba. 
She doesn't show up by name in Jesus' genealogy where she is just called the wife of Uriah, but she is certainly there. David committed adultery with her while her husband was in the battlefield fighting for Israel. David had sent Joab to, send, to lead the battle instead of going himself. He stayed back, and, and, and he ended up seeing Bathsheba on the roof, and he summoned her to him, and, and he impregnated her. She became pregnant because of that affair. Then David commanded Joab to leave Uriah unprotected in battle. So he basically committed murder. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was killed on the battlefield because of David's command. So David, again, was guilty of adultery, murder, and deceit. Bathsheba's first child died by David shortly after birth because, because of God causing him to die. Solomon became their second son and successor to David's throne. You see, despite David's great sin, God showed kindness toward Bathsheba. She became David's wife and distant ancestor to Jesus, the Messiah. Again, the Bible pulls no punches. Absolutely pulls no punches. All four of these incredible stories are clear pictures of God's grace. These four women were outcasts. They were unwanted. Their lives could have ended tragically. Yet, God showed great kindness toward them. He saved them by His grace through faith. And He used them in mighty ways. I hope this is great encouragement to you. No matter what you've done in your past, no matter where you stand in human society, we see it in Matthew, we see it in the the stories of these four women, we'll see it later in a man named Zacchaeus, Uh, it goes on and on and on, no matter what's in your past, you are not beyond the reach of God's loving kindness. If you're here today and you have a sordid past, Don't believe for one moment that you cannot receive God's gracious gift of salvation. You're not beyond saving. Cry out to Him today, even right now. He is a gracious God who will save you if you humble yourself before Him. Just think of of, uh, the woman Rahab. She was a pagan and, and she was a harlot. There was nothing about her that would have commended her to God. Yet God, God saved her by His grace. And by the way, He's still in that business today. Still in the business of saving by grace. Just think about these four women. Just thinking about them reminds me of a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, It is grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us There is the need that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God I am what I am. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And we've seen these magnificent stories of our Lord's glorious grace. Let's look at one final story. The story of a chosen and flawed mother. 
Look at your text in Matthew 1.16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. As you probably know, Mary has been venerated by the Catholic Church. She has been called the co-redemptrix and co-mediator with Christ. Some, many believe that she is the dispenser or a dispenser of grace. These ideas, I hope you realize, don't come from Scripture. They don't even come from early church writings. They were introduced into the church several centuries later through accommodations to pagan myths that originated in Babylonian mystery religions. Now, we don't have time to get into the studies of, of the origins of Mary worship, so we'll simply look at Mary's life through the lens of Scripture. The truth of Mary's life is a much, much, much more amazing story of God's grace than the twisted lies and fabrications of men. First off, Mary is the recipient of God's grace, just like other men and women in Jesus' genealogy. Let me just say this. Mary was just as much a sinner as all other humans. She was just a, an ordinary, relatively unknown, simple young woman. Now, when I say simple, I don't mean slow. I mean simple. Now, when we know, what we do know that is that she was a devout woman who was faithful to the Lord. She possessed an understanding of Scripture that was beyond her years. She most probably excelled, excelled most of, the, of others around her in that way. Just a, a brief study of Mary's song of praise found in Luke 1 proves her spiritual maturity and excellence. Just listen to her words in Luke 1, 46-48. She said, My soul mag- magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble state of his slave, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Now the rest of the song demonstrates that she was a young woman who was morally excellent, and and she had great spiritual understanding. Amazingly, she was just a young girl when she became the mother of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. As amazing as she was, the Bible only depicts her as one who needs, needed the grace of God. She wasn't the dispenser of grace. In Luke one twenty eight, the angel Gabriel came to her, and, and he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, you could translate favored one as one endued with grace. The Greek participle there is passive, which means that she had been blessed with grace, not the other way around. In Luke one forty seven, she proclaims that she has rejoiced in her Savior. Truly, she rejoiced in her Savior because of His great favor to her, His grace. And oh, by the way, she had a clear understanding that God was her Savior. If she had no sin... She wouldn't need a Savior. You see, God had given her the greatest gift that she could be given. He forgave her. And He saved her. Yet, He also graciously gave her the 
unsurpassed privilege of giving birth to Jesus the Messiah. God used a sinner to miraculously give birth to Jesus the Son of God. While you or I can never stand in her privileged place in that sense, we can find great encouragement that God used a woman like Mary to give birth to Jesus the Messiah, to the King. There was nothing special about her outside of her spiritual excellence. God gloriously used a simple young girl who had descended from the line of David to be the Messiah's mother. It was an incredible privilege, but it was just another incredible story of God's amazing grace. You see, Mary's story is not a story about her, but about a God who saves by His grace. Beloved, we've seen, I think it's eight, incredible, magnificent examples of the Lord's grace in the genealogy of our Lord. Let me give you a truth that should absolutely encourage your heart. These stories continue. We've already seen the Lord's grace in the life of Matthew. These stories will go on and on and on as we progress through our study. But even greater than that, These stories continue today. What is your story of God's amazing grace? Have you been saved by the grace of our loving Lord? Earlier we sang the hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. As we ready ourselves to partake in the Lord's table, let me remind you of those words that we just sang just a few minutes ago. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Do you believe that today? I ask you, if you don't know him, will you right now his grace receive? Will you call out to him? Will you trust in the life, death, burial, resurrection of our Lord? Don't let another moment go by without humbly coming to the Father and begging him to save you. He will. He will. Because He's good. He's good. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this day for Your saving grace. Father, we don't bring anything to the altar of salvation. Lord, we need you. We need your grace. Show mercy to us today. Father, may your goodness rain down upon us. 
In Christ's name, amen.